this week's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Uh, we're happy to welcome Rocio Gomez, who's Assistant Professor of Latin American History at Virginia Commonwealth University. And she's a historian of science, environmental history, and medicine. And she'll be talking about uh, her first book, Silver Veins, Dusty Lungs, Mining, Water, and Public Health in Zacatecas, 1833 to 1946, which has now come out with University of Nebraska Press. So we'll give it over to you, Rocio. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, thank you to Dolly and Vinard for this opportunity. I, I do miss Pepper. I wish Pepper was, was here to listen into the talk. Um, but I do send warm greetings to the Greenhouse community, the University of Savanger, and those at home for watching. So I look forward to answering any questions you may have in the Q&A. So my book is an environmental history of modern Mexico. Here it is. Uh, with a special focus on the city of Zacatecas from 1835 to 1946. And I focus on the intersection of mining, water, and public health to understand the dynamic relationship between the human body and the environment. And I wanted to research uh, modern Zacatecas for three principal reasons. So first of all, so much of the literature emphasizes colonial Zacatecas, and that's between 1546 with the arrival of the Spanish and the discovery of, the, of silver in the area that same year, all the way to 1821 when Mexico achieved independence from Spain. And while that's an important period of time, it's a formative period of time for Zacatecas, I had lingering questions as to how mining had changed from that colonial period to the modern period and how the city had changed from that period. Um, this is all in addition to how ideas regarding mining and extraction had changed from that colonial period when it was the Spanish doing the extracting and versus the modern period where you had more locals participating in mining and more US and British interests participating in mining. Second reason I wanted to do uh, this modern uh, environmental history on Zacatecas is that having been to the city itself, I know that mining still exists in the region, but there had, hadn't been a history written about it for the late 19th century, early 20th century. So I really wanted to connect the dots from that colonial period all the way to what I saw in con the contemporary era. And third reason is that the city of Zacatecas is an interesting case of Mexican history. It's a city that's well known for thumbing its nose or, or challenging the power structure of the Mexican government going back into the 19th century. Um, to give you an example, in 1835, uh, the landlocked state of Zacatecas attempted to secede from the Mexican nation in between, and this was all during a fight uh, in the discussion between uh, a centralist government versus a federalist government, that is a strong central government versus uh, power shared among the states. And another example of the state challenging uh, the Mexican federal authority is that a plan was hatched in the state to challenge the power of legendary president Benito Juarez in 1865. All of this on top of Zacatecas, modern Zacatecas, being a cultural powerhouse with mariachi and ranchera music, 
the charros are a, a strong presence in that state, and those are the charros are the Mexican cowboys and, of course, Mexican cuisine. So to provide you with some background, uh, Zacatecas is a city uh, that sits in the state of the same name in north central Mexico. And despite its mining background, it has a beautiful downtown with colonial architecture, a, a chirigoresque uh, cathedral, and a number of tourism shops, all under the shadow of the mountain called La Bufa. In terms of geography, this downtown sits at the bottom of a basin, and it's surrounded by mountains, as well as arid landscape. To say that there is a separation between the city and the mines around the city uh, would be incorrect because you have mines within the city itself. You can actually go and tour one of these former mines um, today. You can take a tour where you enter the mine in a little, a little wagon. Uh, you can look at the mineral display that's inside the mine. You can tour the former mine itself and then you can uh, walk by the discotheque that's inside the mine that you can go and party at and at night. So to facilitate analysis, I approached this topic by examining the ecology of extraction. And that is the vertical axis of um, an, an analysis of uh, power structures and through political ecology that is examining the power structures vertically as well as social ecology. That is the ideas of nature that the locals had and how locals interacted with, eco with ecology, with nature. So before I get to the excerpt I'm going to read, uh, let me set it up for you um, by telling you about uh, federal approaches to water legislation. So the crux of this book emphasizes 1876 to 1946, which encapsulates two periods in Mexican history. The first being um, the Porfiriato from 1876 to 1911, which saw the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz emphasize water and water access as a means to a healthy population in certain corners of Mexico City. So this was not a nationwide program, it was more isolated to certain pockets of Mexico City. And second, the Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1946, which is going to limit access to water sources by declaring that resource national property in Article 27 of the Constitution of 1917. So while there is considerable legislation with regards to water, uh, it stands to reason that there would be legal cases where it wasn't quite clear and who would bear the brunt of the blame for water contamination. Would it be the mining company? Would it be locals? Or would it the federal government have say on who exactly uh, was at fault for contaminating water? While human bodies are centered in this book, uh, the bodies of animals serve as evidence of toxic waters. In rural communities around the city of Zacatecas, animal bodies uh, serve as the warning uh, to farmers and other observers that the water had changed, that the makeup of the water had changed. So I use uh, in the excerpt I'm going to read two terms I want to explain. And the first one um, is animal barometers. And this is from chapter four. Animal barometers um, are 
cattle, sheep, and goats that serve as indicators of when the stream has been contaminated. And I'll also talk about um, how, in, how locals used memory to, to make their case for how water had been contaminated. And so I use the term environmental memory. And environmental memory is um, the locals that write to federal officials and that say, um, this is how the water has changed. I clearly remember when the water was clear and it didn't have three inches of sediment in it. I remember when there were fruit trees uh, along, along the stream and then suddenly they died. So, okay. So again, this is from chapter four, and the title of the chapter is The Body as Land. On January, on the 30th of January, 1937, a group of townspeople in Jimenez del Teu wrote to the Secretary of Agriculture and Development to say that the cattle could no longer drink from the local stream because the effluvium was thick and fetid. They also described the water from the stream as too dirty for domestic use. Farmers and villagers presented an environmental memory of clean water without three inches of sediment in it. And they wrote of how their observations, about their observations regarding animals. Cattle did not want to drink the water, and if they did, they stopped existing, they wrote. Many cattle and sheep died as a result of consuming the water, which led to their owners to request compensation. In July, 1936, General Arturo Reyes Robledo helped the campesinos write an initial letter demanding compensation for dead animals. That petition had observed that nothing had been done to remedy the situation. Reyes Robledo cited in his letter necropsy samples from 17 small ungulates and 63 head of cattle to demonstrate the severity of the situation. In addition, he included the observations of locals who had used the water on their plants, which had soon died. He concluded that a link existed between humans and their surroundings and requested compensation for the dead animals. Five for every goat, five pesos for every sheep or goat, and 30 pesos for every head of cattle lost. In the examples of agriculture being disturbed by mining, animals served as the barometer for human health. When animals died for, after consuming water, their deaths indicated a dangerous toxin in the resource. Animals had long served as indicators of the health of the environment. And if animals became ill or died suddenly, farmers and or ranchers sought an environmental culprit. The animals most closely linked to mining were horses, mules, and burros. They dragged carts of ore from the mines, pulled water winches, dragged rakes across the amalgamating ponds, or hauled supplies from one site to another. The patio ponies in silver mining states of Mexico gained a degree of fame in the US travel literature because of their shocking conditions. Thomas Wallace Knox, in his 1890 book, The Boy Travelers in Mexico, a travel a travel adventure series written for youth, wrote of animals used in the mining process in the states of Zacatecas and Guanajuato. The narrators, based on Knox's own world travels, describe Zacatecas as anything but attractive and poorly supplied with water. In touring the mining sites, the fictional characters of Knox's book 
called the animals sorry looking brutes because of the shaved tails and the bodies splashed with mud as they pulled the rake through the toxic circles where mercury and other chemicals were mixed together. The animals used by, by mining operations argued, Fred, one of the characters, often had little value because of age and proved useless for anything else. He observed that the chemicals destroyed their hooves and they did not last a great while. In addition to serving as a barometer of toxicity in the area, animals illustrated the consequences of contact with the toxins, their bodies demonstrating the effects of chemicals on organic bodies. So again, even though my, even though the book emphasizes public health, uh, I really wanted to include other measures of how people knew that mining sites were toxic, how people knew that water was toxic. And unfortunately, uh, animals were the, served as indicators for um, that toxicity of water. So I look forward to your questions and discussing this further in the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was good. Uh, so then we're ready for questions. As I wrote just now, if you have any questions, just uh, just write a note in the chat and uh, I will call on you. But I thought I'd start, I mean, how you, so you talked about environmental memory and you also talked a little bit about uh, the the heritage of, I mean, or the tourist experience of, of these mines in the areas, the discotheque and going on the little cart. Now, I've, I've done some work on, on mining heritage, visiting different mines in, uh, in Sweden in particular uh, for this one research project. So I was curious then if you, how do people in Zacatecas today talk about this heritage that you write about? Do you see any, in a way, the, the problematic side of mining history too? Is that uh, something that is brought up in, in heritage? presentations or is it just a kind of say not very dangerous uh, uh, material they deal with in presenting this to tourists? So in Zacatecas uh, most of the mines now are owned by Canadian mining companies. Um, we in terms of how the workers at these companies view that mining heritage, it's difficult to say um, because there isn't that sense of ownership. So I wonder what, how ownership plays into uh, the discussion of mining heritage. Second, um, Zacatecas itself prides itself in its mining history. Um, it's, it lauds and it upholds this, its school of mines, which is affiliated with um, the, the Autonomous University of Zacatecas, Universidad Autónoma de Zacatecas. Um, and so that there is that um, educational heritage tied to mining as well. Uh, where I have seen that workers themselves uphold and, and recognize this mining heritage is in Guanajuato. And Guanajuato is like Zacatecas, an old school mining city. But most of the mines there are held in part um, by local Mexican mining companies. So you actually, if you go to Guanajuato, you can see the miners on the backs of trucks with their head, their helmets actually going off to the mine versus you don't see that so much in Zacatecas itself. So, but still, 
You have tourism around mining in Zacatecas. You can go and tour these mines. So that there is that element of, of mining heritage, but also cultural heritage of how it's suddenly gone from this industrial heritage to look, this is suddenly entertainment. Um, during that tour, they don't really talk about the, um, the dark tourism aspect of it. Um, that is that this, this was a dangerous job, that people died in it, and there are lingering toxic legacies with it. That's not really brought up during the tour. And I have a whole chapter coming out in the tourism uh, history uh, edited collection about this as well. Um, but in terms of locals talking about the toxicity of mining, um, they know exactly what how mining has affected their water. Um, you see this in parts of Zacatecas, the northern uh, city of Mazapil. Zacatecas is where one of the largest mines in the world is, and this is Mina Peñasquito. And so there is that discussion of how mines have made water toxic, um, but there isn't so much an emphasis on that toxicity in industrial heritage. Great, thank you. So, Greg, you had a question. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay, uh, well, thank you. Um, so, hi, this is Greg Daler. I'm from uh, Colorado, where it's uh, been very hot. and We've run into uh, a long streak of, we're about actually to break a record for the longest streak of 90 plus days in the summer. Um, so and you're about to really get snow here. tomorrow, right? And, uh, well, supposedly, you know, it's been, 90 degrees lately and we've had forest fires, so it's been a little bit of an unpleasant summer. But I have a question, thank you very much for uh, presenting today. I have a question about regulations. What was the response to this cha noticeable change in water quality? Um, and since this is an independent region, as, as you kind of described it, did they interact with other Mexican states? I mean, how did, what, what, what was the outcome of some of this, noticing these things? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your question, Greg. Um, in Mexico, uh, environmental regulation and mining regulation is only as good as it's how it's applied and how it's upheld. So there, there is regulation against uh, dumping contaminated water into streams, however, even in the early 20th century, but that's not really enforced. So. Um, it's really a question of enforcement and applying those regulations uh, with oversight as well. Um, yes, Zacatecas has a streak of independence to it, um, but it is under uh, the, the same constitution as the other states. And because most of its economy comes from mining, um, it's going to give the industry a little more leeway than other states, for example. Thank you, though. All right, so Dolly, you had a question? Yes. Um, I mean, this sounds like a really fascinating uh, case study in thinking about how people respond to environmental contamination. And so I was wondering about, in your, in your description, that there's these kind of farmers, ranchers, you know, local people that see an effect um, on their livestock and then call in, if you will, in some sense, expertise of a particular kind, right? Of a scientific kind, because it, so I'm wondering about this, um, 
the relationship between the different um, epistemologies here. So um, is there some seen as a value that you need to have a scientist who, who writes, who can uh, give you some kind of evidence? You know, how does that weigh up versus the oral history, the memory, and, and you know, in terms of the government's reaction to all of this? Okay. So Mexico's absolutely huge, of course. And um, so if the complaints were sent from Zacatecas to the national capital, uh, in this particular case of Jimenez del Teul, they actually sent their letter of complaint to the national capital. And then the national capital said to surrounding states in the region, can you send an expert or to try to mediate the conflict between not only locals who were infighting over the water source, but also the mining company that was contaminating the water source. And then on top of that, you have other locals who say, actually that water is mine. So the scientists were not there so much as scientists as more mediators. And still another case that I discuss in the book is where you have a similar situation, but you have um, instead map maker, a cartographer that's sent in and his job is to track the water source and its origin. So once the water source and its origin were identified, they can make the claim if the water belonged to the mining company or if it belonged to the farmers or even still if it belonged to the federal government as national property. So, yeah. There are testing, um, they do test the water, um, but in some cases, those vials of water, those samples of water don't ever reach the capital. So, yeah. All right, so Carrie, you had a question? Hey, hiya. Um, hey. Let me see if I can put on my camera so we're not just all disembodied voices. Yeah, oh, I'm really close. Yeah, it seems like. Hi, this is Carrie. I'm from uh, the Open University at the UK. Thank you so much for your talk. I really enjoyed um, hearing it. And I really like what you did on um, the focus on, on the bodies, and particularly mm -hmm. different kind of bodies of animals um, and humans as well. Um, you mentioned something at the beginning about verticalities and, and power. So I wonder if you could say a bit more, more on that. On ecologies and power? Verticalities. Oh, the verticalities of power. Oh, so um, this is with political ecology when you're discussing how power uh, is determines how the how nature is used and how it, it how resources are consumed. So that is just one part of um, a, a set an approach that I had with uh, this book is that you have power, but also that power really in such an independent region. Um, you really have to have an agreement to have that set, that power structure and how locals use those water, those same resources and those same water sources and how they responded to power and its regulations, its legislations and so on. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. Um, I was wondering then with, yeah, with that structure of power, um how did people handle the the drinking i mean are is a drinking water supply i mean there's kind of the animals right in the crops in in your quote 
but I assume there's also the issue of drinking water supply um, here for the city. And where did people get it from normally? And then how, yeah, were there corporations that were supplying the water or the government? And then how did that intersect in that vertical nature with the mining companies? You know, because what we see, I guess, elsewhere is a lot of times people in one set of companies are actually the same people that run another set of companies. So, you know, there may be a lot of interactions there. So water in terms of drinking, um, up on, in terms, let me give you some background. And depending where you are in the city because of its makeup, it's quite possible that people went to draw their drinking water from the mines itself. So there was an agreement between locals and mining companies that if the mining company hit a spring of water, they would tell locals and then the locals would go and use it as a source. And they themselves would use the winches to draw up water um, if it was clear and if it was clean. Um, then on top of that, the whole city itself re relied on a pond. Um, and that pond is still there. Uh, it is a spring-fed pond, and you can go, and it's a nice park now. Um, but that pond used to be uh, one of the sources of water, as well as one of the local mines that was near that pond. There is a case in the late 19th century where a mining company goes to the mine and starts pumping that water out, and then the pond starts dropping. And so, and on top of that, the water source in the mine starts dropping. So there is a question of how much are people willing to risk their drinking water for access, for permitting these mining companies from accessing silver. So you have a question of balance there. Um, in the late 19th century, that's when you have the public fountains that are installed. And there are several pictures in the book of where people take their jugs and they go to these fountains and fill up their water. And these are fountains out in the middle of plazas. And so they're quite a pleasant and open atmosphere and they're social atmosphere. And, you, and many of them are still there today. So that's where, that's another source for drinking fountains as well. So this is a, it's a case study, right? So you're, you're picking one particular town that mines around that. Uh, but there are, of course, many places with mines. Uh, would you say this is a representative case? Are there significant differences uh, that one should note? Yeah, and thank you for that question. So yes, there are mining in Mexico exists all the way from um, the south of Mexico all the way into the north. So in terms of how this differs, I would say that Zacatecas is uh, notable because of its location. It is in an, on the Mexican Altiplano. Um, it's a high elevation plateau, it's arid, making the question of water all the more dire and critical. Uh, how it compares to Guanajuato, I think that would be an interesting comparison. Uh, Guanajuato is considered more lush, it's much more um, it's much closer to an agricultural center with El Bahio, that agricultural basin in Mexico. Um, so Guanajuato and Zacatecas would be a very interesting comparison. Uh, the main comparison, I believe, would be Zacatecas and Pachuca. And Pachuca is in central Mexico and uh, Zacatecas is in north central. That's a completely different situation because Pachuca 
use old school water wheels that would be on streams and the water wheels would turn the rock that would grind down the ore versus in Zacatecas where it was relied almost exclusively on uh, blood power, the horse turning um, in circles and walking in circles. There weren't any water wheels, uh, at least not that I found in my research, namely because there wasn't any water. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's largely material circumstances and differences there. Right. Do we have other questions? This is your chance, people. <laughs> I could take them in Spanish, too. If there are questions <laughs> in Espanol, we can do it bilingual. <laughs> Well, so that is, so you know that is something I guess to ask you um, as far as the research process and then the process of writing this book um, is that I I'm guessing then that all of your sources um, are in Spanish and your field works and visiting are in Spanish. How how did the process go then in writing about this in English? What are the challenges of that choice? Um, yes, most of the archival research that comes from uh, Zacatecas archives, as well as the National Archives in Mexico City, most of them are in English. Uh, in terms of how you approach uh, this, um, I would say that there were, because of my bilingual brain, there would be times where I, I wouldn't know which language I was writing in, and so I would code switch in the middle of writing, but um, it all turned out in English, thankfully. But in terms of um, the challenges of, of doing research in one language and then writing in another is, as I mentioned to L Lorena earlier, um, is that uh, the, the technology lingo was something that I had to get used to. And so that's where that dictionary became very helpful. Um, not all of my sources were in English. There were some that were in English. Not all my sources were in Spanish. There were some of my sources in English. A lot of those, uh, a lot of those English language sources came in the form of mining literature from U.S. mining companies and U.S. mining magazines. So you do, such as uh, the Engineering and Mining Journal, for example. So that is a, a source that was in English and that did provide. Uh, an outsider's perspective as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I, I could think about how the technical terms for things would be quite difficult, right? Because you need to know what a, what they're talking about um, and, and to try and convert that over um, to another language. So, so then I guess the flip side question of that is, do you intend or have you written something for the Spanish-speaking public about this case? Is there a message for them that you would like them to take out of the work you've done? So an article um, was from, an article was written based on this research and it was submitted to Istor and was published um, in, in Istor, which is a, a Mexico-based Spanish language journal. Uh, so they do have access to that article and in that particular article I looked at uh, the fountains and how the fountains themselves, the, this public drinking water distribution system was seen as modern, as seen as progressive in the late 19th century. Um, so that is 
one source for Spanish-speaking audiences. Um, another one is that I hope that this book would, would be translated uh, in for Spanish-speaking audiences as well. That is something that, that does happen in Latin American history. So that is one resource. And the second is that I hope to give talks not unlike this uh, in Spanish uh, for other people and other scholars in Latin America. Yeah. Hmm. So Greg had a question. Sure. Right, yeah, I'm gonna put my camera on too. Yeah, so um, I've got another question. Uh, since it's Labor Day here in America, what is the uh, impact on workers in these environments? If, you've, if it's noticed that it's so unsafe outside with the poison water, what was the effect inside the mines? And were the labor disputes, or were there any labor disputes um, because of that? So early on in the colonial period, miners will say that they uh, attempted, that they participated in mining with um, their hammers, nails, and nails, like their little nails, hand nails, fingernails. Um, so that, so there was this question of technology. Um, and I think uh, where this is going, Greg, is in terms of hammers and how do you really draw that uh, ore out from the rock, right? So in particular, you had um, early, uh, in, in early, well, let me say mid to late 19th century introduction of steam powered hammers and then power drills uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. This inevitably is gonna kick up a lot of dust. And I have a chapter in the book that discusses silicosis, which silicosis is a chronic lung disease that comes through the inhalation of dust, uh, whether it be at low levels or at very high levels. So silicosis is one of the occupational hazards of mining, but also accidents. And I describe various accidents um, in that era for miners in Zacatecas as well. So mining um, has always been hazardous, right? Uh, George Agricola tells us that, uh, Ramazzini tells us that, and so, it stands to reason that even in colonial mining in Zacatecas, there would be hazards, and those hazards are certainly one of the legacies of mining in that region. Yeah. I was wondering about the, the relationship between the city and the mine. I mean, in particular, since this is a very long history, been mining for a long time there, but what will happen when the mine runs out? Mm -hmm. Uh, the, uh, the city, yeah. you know, the city getting closer or encroaching on the mine as well. Yeah. I mean, we, we had case in, um, in northern Sweden, very famous mine in Kiruna, where the, the city has had to be relocated twice because the mine has expanded and gotten closer uh, mm -hmm. to where the settlement was. Um, and so there become these questions of, well, who's the city for, right? Is it for the mine or is it for the, the people who live there? Um, so yeah, yeah. Think about the relationship. It was one, that relationship was um, um, mutually beneficial and mutually exploitive. Uh, and in many ways they benefited from each other's presence. Uh, certainly the economy benefited and local merchants benefited. Um, but at the same time, uh, the mine is going to just consume workers, right? It's going to send them out injured or sick and so on. Um, with regards to that relationship, there 
is initial tensions of when mining is opened up to foreign investors in the late 19th century, that you do have those clashes over water sources. You know, who, how is someone going to water their, their maize crop while a mine is encroaching on their water source or polluting their water source? So that is an, one of the central questions in the book. Um, on top of that, you have um, an, a certain element of cultural exchange as well with mining heritage and industrial heritage that we earlier talked about. Um, but there is, um, I think that one of the big tensions is how far is the, the city willing to sacrifice its economy in order to uh, regulate or to limit the power of the mine, mining companies in the region. Um, there are mines within the city itself. Um, as, I, as I mentioned in earlier, that you can actually walk from the cathedral all the way to this mine that you can tour. Um, and even today, uh, there is a Canadian mining company that's just on the outskirts that quite literally looks down on the uh, city center. So there, to say that, there, that the city would move, um, probably unlikely. And it's, it's one of those strange um, relationships that is closely tied, um, but at the same time, um, that toxicity that just builds over time really is going to eventually have a limit, so. So have they had a lot of public health issues? I mean, you mentioned silicosis. And you mentioned, you know, injuries. So it, is that, you know, particularly prominent then in Zacatecas? And how does the local government then, who I assume in some way has to take responsibility for, you know, citizens um, handling, you know, ha handled it in, in your case study? So in terms of, in terms of, um, how the local municipal government has handled uh, current public health crises. Um, it, you haven't really heard them speak out. And uh, there is a, a, um, a Canadian scholar that teaches in Zacatecas named Darcy Tetrault, uh, who has gone to, to discuss the environmental conflicts around Canadian mining companies from a political science and sociological perspective. Um, but I also think that um, this is a relationship that's gone on for centuries and for such a long time that there is almost an uneasy acceptance that that is uh, what you have to deal with. Most people in Zacatecas, um, the water that comes out of the, out of the tap uh, comes from local aquifers. So these are ancient aquifers underneath the city that are now considered critical because of how many people depend on them. Um, and in terms of the consumption of water, um, Zacatecas, like parts of Mexico, uh, you have the, the weekly five gallon uh, delivery of water to your house in order to drink water from there. Um, that or it's soda pop, right? So it's, so there are questions of, of uh, indirect consequences to mining, uh, such as uh, the lack of water and the dependence on other sugary drinks. And, and so I think that the, and of course with the consumption of sugary drinks, you have um, a rise of diabetes and so on, yeah. 
So I had another question about uh, the process. I mean, you talked about uh, the challenges of the, the bilingual uh, aspect, writing in English about sources material in Spanish, which I completely sympathize with, doing the same thing with Norwegian quite often. Uh, but did you face any other challenges in the writing, like things that were difficult with this book? Because that's always interesting to hear about, I think. Yeah. So. In, in terms of gathering sources, I arrived in Zacatecas uh, for my research year and the whole archival, um, all of the state archives were being overhauled. Uh, there wasn't any power, there, it was being gutted, um, but the director um, of, uh, of the archive was so generous and allowed me to go in there and to really uh, dig in the archives and request the materials that I needed and she was incredible for incredibly generous for her time and I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. Um, on top of that, they, the National Archive. I wish I had spent more time at the National Archive because I had that opportunity to spend time there before they installed their recent regulations. I think it's worrisome when any time you have a National Archive that imposes regulations on what materials and how many of those materials you can view. So. Uh, for those of you that don't know, um, the, Ameri the uh, AGN, the um, National General Archive, the General National Archive, I guess we could say, um, of Mexico now limits the number of documents uh, that people can view per day. And you have to request those the day before. And so it's only 10 documents per day. Um, and that's incredibly frustrating because I, re and when I went back in 2016 to gain, to gain access to more documents, I was told this new rule and I was crushed, of course. And then I, because I remember in 2011, when I went through maybe 20 boxes in a day, right? And so the before and the after that regulation is, is really challenging for scholars who are limited in terms of the amount of time they can spend there. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly a tough one. So we have time for one last question. If uh, there's anyone who wants to come up with one. No, otherwise we can just wrap up. Yes, uh, I mean, I think this is a great um, example of how you can think about the relationship between bodies and a place and resources and non-human bodies um, and that they're all actually tied together in one story. Um, and so, and, and they have this long-term relationship uh, and that it's not always a very easy thing. It's, it's a lot of conflict um, in there and that the, not not everyone what 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 people end up doing is not beneficial or to everyone right it's differential and that power differentials um mean that some people and some things um end up on the short side of of things um and so i think it's a really good um story for us to to look at and keep in mind um if you're doing any kind of uh work really on public health as well as in mining, as well as in Mexican history. So I think it's a really nice contribution to environmental history and environmental humanities in general. Thank so thank you very much uh, for talking with us today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And thank you all for attending. <laughs>